happening. We've been watching this for, for three years or so, move from the kind of bottom of the internet, as it were, on obscure chans through different levels and layers until it's there in Hansard being used by our politicians. I think that the left and right concept is still relevant. It's definitely relevant on Twitter. Don't forget, you know, you have four platforms that have more than 90% of the internet on them. QAnon is dangerous and it's already done real harm. Memes can be quite concise ways and quite funny ways of really pointing out a very stupid point that maybe like a politician's made or like a pretty stupid policy. To take the red pill, it offers a system, it puts sense on things, it puts order on maybe a lot of things that you've been feeling. So maybe facts don't care about your feelings, but for QAnoners, it's your feelings that send you out looking for facts. Hello and welcome to Reactionary Digital Politics, a podcast series about the relationship of politics and political culture with digital communication and internet culture and with particular interest in what's happening on the right-wing side of the political spectrum. This is episode six, How Does It Look? Who are we? I'm Alan Finlayson, I teach and research politics, political theory and rhetoric at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. And I'm Rob Topinka, I research and teach media and cultural studies at Birkbeck University of London. I'm Rob Gallagher, I research digital culture at the University of East Anglia. And I'm Sophie Ludkin, a radio producer. So what are we talking about this episode? This episode, we're talking about aesthetics, what it looks like online, how that plays a part in politics, and how it helps political ideas to look attractive. So who has power over culture? Who gets to do it? Who gets to make, write, film and sing the kind of things that become the most well-known and influential? There are a few ways into this question, right? We could say only surpassing geniuses, the gifted Mozarts of their day, should contribute to the cultural canon. We could say, oh, corporate gatekeepers or international media and entertainment conglomerates, they hold the keys. We could say, oh, now it's algorithms that determine who gets heard and on what terms. Or we could say that audiences, consumers and their judgments on what's appealing are what matter. Or maybe it's about the interaction and, and conflict among all these different groups. And if it is a conflict, it'll be like any conflict, any war over culture. It's going to be shaped by the tools and the weapons available to you. And one of the tools and weapons that we've been talking about in all of these episodes so far is, is social media and the affordances of social media. So some of you may remember in 2006, Time magazine in the United States announced you as the person of the year in 2006. And the idea was this was announcing the dawn of a new social media age that was going to be democratizing and horizontal and everyone would be participating on an equal footing in this new kind of media environment. And we've already heard from Hugo Loyal on this, right? Networks are hierarchical. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the, ne- the connected get more and more connected. So unfortunately, in all likelihood, you probably don't matter all that much on social media. And it's not news to most people that the big platforms, especially Facebook, play an outsized role in shaping what we see and when we see it and even whether we engage with it. So that 2006 time cover probably marked the height of the digital optimist wave, the idea that we're all equal because we're all on the network. But even if networks are hierarchical, they are a new kind of hierarchy. There is something different about them. And there's no doubt that networks have this decentralizing effect on culture. 
So lots of people can access platforms and set themselves up on a platform, whether it's Reddit or Instagram or YouTube or Twitter or now Substack or Medium. Uh, And you can build an audience. It might be a small audience, but it might also be a paying audience, and it could end up being an influential audience. So there are suddenly lots of content creators and tastemakers out there in the world. So one of the things that happens with with any new technology and any new cultural technology is that people use it to challenge authorities in new kinds of ways. So in the past, that might have been printing subversive pamphlets that satirized authority with words and images. More recent examples might be pirate radio stations, fanzines, alternative and underground music scenes, all things associated with DIY culture, punk culture. Sociologists call these subcultures, right? Seeing them as ways in which people created a certain kind of community with a shared language and a shared imagery. Sometimes these subcultures might be connected to politics, as were hippies and punks and skinheads. Many of these groups got involved in politics directly. Their style, their aesthetics were also a part of that. Their style was a rejection of official or mainstream culture and kind of a statement of a certain sort of belief. So style can be an important part of social and political movements. Florian Kramer teaches and researches 21st century visual culture at an art and design school at Rotterdam. And we asked him about this. Well, you could, of course, argue that if you look at uh, subcultures at large, um, whatever their background, their ideology is, then they always had this combination of uh, visual culture and political ideology. I mean, that is true for, I don't know, the 19th century communist movements in conjunction with the arts and crafts movement as much as it is uh, for the alt-right culture today in its conjunction with uh, the internet memeing phenomenon. So that is also a question, right? I'm not a political scientist, but whether the categories of, you could say, visual culture or cultural studies on the one hand and political science and political theory, political philosophy on the other, aren't sometimes artificially limited. And actually, we have to talk about cultural, political uh, and ideological phenomena in a much more comprehensive sense. And that would, you know, it would apply to anything. It would apply to a phenomenon like fascism. So I think Florian's right about that. If we want to think about politics, we have to think about culture. Cultural movements can sometimes create a style that has a political dimension that overturns or criticizes or subverts the mainstream way of doing things. But political movements also have a style, a cultural dimension that might be part of how they appeal to people and bring them into their political movements. And the key thing is that digital culture is changing, at least in some ways, how that kind of culture is produced, how it happens, who leads it, and so therefore its political effects. Right. And as it so often does, digital culture is giving a new shape to an old problem, the overlap between aesthetics and ideology in this case. So the more we do politics in profile-driven environments like Twitter, the more how you look on the platform uh, intersects with your politics. So this overlap isn't new between ideology and aesthetics, but I think it is more intense online. And it may be that because of the way we experience being online, the visual and linguistic performance style is especially important and particularly significant for attracting and drawing people into political subcultures and then to a particular politics. So one of the things you see in online culture all the time is particular ways of thinking about and relating to so-called aesthetics. And with that in mind, we ask Sophie to ask our students about it. I definitely think there's like an aesthetic side to to these platforms that's like quite vivid and quite recognisable. I think uh it kind of comes in waves and trends as to sort of like what what the trendy aesthetic is i I think there are unique aesthetics to different cultures and different 
groups. There's obviously uh, the, the meme of Theresa May dancing in at the party conference, which is it's just, some, it's just like a quick image. You take like two seconds to look at and you'll just be able to get a laugh out of it. And, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to I suppose get information out of it. Um, I know that James Felton is, is someone on Twitter who often like is criticising the government or, or criticising, you know, something that's that's been happening in the political sphere um, and speaks out about it a lot and challenges things and challenges people. And he sometimes does it in a way using sort of like humour and memes. I think if I was trying to show someone a meme that would like summarise or, or let them know what memes are, I would probably show them something from his account where he usually repurposes like a popular meme and makes it political. Aesthetic to me means the look of something. When I think of it, I think trendy. For accounts that have a really good aesthetic, I follow one called um, Black Brit. So it's B-L-K and then it's Brit at the end. And I love like their feed on Twitter and also Instagram. They have a really good, good feed. Someone distilling like John Paul Sartre into just a stupid little meme where it's like, there's ones that are just kind of like secular. So it's like, I read Sartre, I get depressed, I read more. So this is the 20, 2019 election, wasn't it, Boris uh, Corbyn, right? And so there were quite a lot of these memes going around. It was like uh, Jeremy or Boris. So it says issue at the top, but then it's like, and then it's this one's favourite plants. And then it's got a picture of both of them. And then it says, so favourite plants. And then like Corbyn's response is, lavender and comfrey are great for attaching bees to the garden, attracting bees to the garden. And then underneath Boris, it says, the ones I put on question time. So it's just like taking the mic, obviously comparing two politicians, but in quite like a humorous way. And they, they, there was like lots of these, there was like different issues. And then they would like have sort of obviously different responses underneath. So then there's quite a lot of interesting things going on in, the, in what the students are saying there. I noticed that the first one was talking about how Theresa May kind of looked super uncool when she when they snapped this moment of her dancing kind of quite badly on some international visit. So there's a way in which mainstream politics, official politics, if you like, just looks hopelessly uncool. Maybe they always kind of did, but it looks particularly uncool in an internet environment where bits get snapped away and become parts of other people's memes that just make you look hopelessly outdated and not with it. Ironically, I think being flagrantly uncool was one of the things that made Corbyn so memeable. You could take this character and place him in all these kinds of situations and spin a kind of humour out of it that people found quite relatable uh, and quite a refreshing change from the kind of dominant aesthetic of politics. Yeah, so there's, there's we've been talking about context collapse, but there's also the collision of context, right, where you take something from one context and then it becomes funny when you put it in another. So Theresa May dancing becomes funny when you put it somewhere else. Another very memeable uh, leader was George W. Bush in the U.S. because he would kind of make a lot of uh, over-the-top faces. He was often mugging. So it was easy to put him somewhere else uh, and sort of make fun of him, but also have a laugh by doing that. But I think one of the things that's important to try and understand here is the ways in which, certainly the way our students have talked about it, the meme is a really important part of the vocabulary of politics, these little images and snapshots with jokey statements put over them. In a, in a way, it's, in, in the past, you might have had a tabloid newspaper giving a headline, giving someone a funny name, a funny image of them. But that could just be done by that newspaper's sub-editors. They could compile that image and they had quite a lot of power there. Now, lots of people can make memes, memes of all sorts of flying around the internet, labelling, naming, representing all these different kinds of official political movements, but also the non-official, the, the movements that are challenging politics, whether that's from the left or from the right. 
And I think we've got the sense there that in a way it's perverse to ask people to talk about aesthetics. It's how things look, it's how they feel. Uh, you know it when you see it. And that's why it's so useful in feeling out who belongs in which camp and where the dividing lines are. So to fess up, I'm the older person in the room and I need you to explain a little bit of this to me uh, some more. I am extremely online, especially insofar as I've been doing this research project, but I think my aesthetic sense is definitely pre-digital. It's about television and films, books and so forth. I've never really played video games. and I'm not really active in these parts of the internet. So can you tell me a little bit more about how the digital aesthetic works? So one way to, to think about aesthetics online would be this blog that James Bridle starts in the 2010s called The New Aesthetic. It was a Tumblr and it collected examples of how digital technologies were producing new styles and new ways of seeing the world, including, for example, the bleeding over of aesthetics that were associated with particular digital technologies like 80s video game consoles into the real world. So pixel art as a kind of aesthetic that you saw in street art or in knitwear. And in a way, you might say we're in a kind of post-new uh, aesthetics age, right? Because the boundary between online and offline is completely obsolete in some ways, right? I mean, if you think about my mobile phone plan has unlimited data, I'm literally always online, right? The online-offline distinction is sort of a hangover from the dial-up internet age. We're always online now. And when we're always online, we're always engaging with aesthetic choices, right? I mean, one famous example that's become so obvious we don't think about it anymore is that when we use computers, we're clicking on Windows, right? That's a visual metaphor, as are folders and files, right? So digital culture is highly aesthetic, it's highly visual, but it also makes DIY aesthetic creation fun and and pretty easy so i'm uh also you know from a slightly different internet age than the students we were talking to uh just now but when i you know when i was in high school at the turn of the millennium in, in anywhere usa you don't have a whole lot of aesthetic choices available to you it was basically the stores at the mall right you could be a preppy uh, you could be a goth or you could be a hippie and, and that was about it there wasn't a lot of options for aesthetic experimentation. And now there are. There's sort of endless options, which isn't to say that high school is no longer crushingly conformist. I'm sure it is. But it's become much easier to find aesthetic wormholes of various kinds. And the internet is full of this. It's full of these different aesthetics, all with different names, right? So there's there's rage comics, there's internet ugly, there's vaporwave, retrowave, fash wave. There's an explosion of cores of different kinds, norm core, dad core, cryptid core, any kind of core you might want to find. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what all of those things are. But I have heard of this thing called dark academia. Something served that up in my internet feed, which seemed to be young people, I think even school age, maybe not students, kind of imitating an idea of academia. You can see why I paid attention to yeah. it, right? They're kind of wearing tweeds and carrying dusty old books around and making playlists on YouTube of certain sorts of 19th century classical music and so forth. I mean, I don't know if they do it in real life or whatever, but it seemed to be something that people were identifying with. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's this huge range of new aesthetic forms, right, that, that shape our identities, right, and shape our orientation to politics and to communication, you know. So there's the reaction GIF, and TikTok is, is a platform arguably built off of reaction as a kind of core mode of engagement. There's the YouTube visual essay. There's the podcast, like you're listening to right now. So we're all used to presenting ourselves aesthetically in various kinds of ways, whether that's through, for example, our profile pictures. And we're used to using aesthetics to signal our politics, or at least our tastes and our interests. And a lot of times, our tastes and our interests overlap in, in important ways with our politics. And that's particularly true in the, in the political groups we've been studying. Reactionary groups exploit this connection between identity and aesthetics as a shortcut to politics. 
So there's lots of examples of this, right? There's a, in 2016 in particular, fascists took the high and tight haircut. They made it higher and tighter, and they called it fashy, right, which was a pun on fascist and fashion, and they would talk about getting a fashy haircut. Uh, the Proud Boys love their Fred Perry polos uh, and their Proud Boy hoodies. They have a lot of merch uh, available for the Proud Boys. Uh, the Boogaloo Boys, who are a somewhat obscure group, uh, arguing in a way for, for a kind of third civil war in the, or a second civil war in the United States. They have a very particular aesthetic that involves uh, fash wave and the wearing of Hawaiian shirts. Uh, and everyone knows that frog memes mean fascism now. Just in case people listening don't know, can you explain in one sentence what these are? So Pepe the Frog is a cartoon frog who users on 4chan decided as a joke to turn into a symbol of Nazism, and then he became an earnest symbol of Nazism. Okay. So the idea, I take it, is that these political groups can kind of mark themselves out by the use of a certain style, at least in um, offline, not online life. But the idea is that often online influence bleed into each other. And so online is a way people can find out about and get drawn into a thing just as in the past they might have been drawn into something through music uh, or literature. Yeah, and, and those parallels are quite useful. The artist and researcher Josh Citarella, for example, has claimed that where people might once have sought to set their blog or their band apart by aligning them with uh, an obscure micro-genre, uh, whether that's Witch House or Sea Punk, um, maybe today uh, young people online looking to position themselves politically take a similar approach to constructing their own political ideologies, whether that's anarcho-primitivism or post-Maoist transhumanist authoritarian monarchism. Uh, they are more like kind of obscure musical genres than the ideologies we might be familiar with from offline politics. So there's all these new sort of aesthetic styles or genres that people can make and create online. And there are also openings for new kinds of politics, or at least new ways of maybe doing old politics. Can somebody give me an example? Yeah, so we've talked in previous episodes about incels, right? Involuntary celibates, men uh, who are struggling to develop sexual relationships and form an identity around that. So online, this has formed into a kind of subculture, not just a situation some people find themselves in, but a sort of consciously held identity. Debbie Ging from Dublin City University has studied this part of the internet, and she explained to us the way that incels link identity and politics to aesthetics. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there are very different reactions to the perceived threat to male hegemony, for want of a better word, or to the dominance of, you know, traditional manhood. And one is to try and kind of claw it back and to make threats about the better rebellion. Another is to, you know, to aspire to alpha status, shall we say, because they talk about alpha males, beta males, and then incels. So, you know, you can either aspire to alpha male status and kind of uh, try to reclaim what you feel has been lost. Or you can go the the better or the incel route and kind of uh, accept to some extent um, your fate and revel in, in that kind of uh, subordinated status, which allows you to use tropes of victimhood, uh, etc. It doesn't necessarily mean withdrawing entirely. So there are different levels, I guess, of functioning or politically functioning. Uh, within that decision, certainly within incel, you can still hold out hope to ascend, which means, you know, to, to become sexually successful. And that's why you have all this gym selling and gym maxing, et cetera, taking steroids, et cetera, sometimes resorting even to um, 
surgery, although I think that has been really hyped by the media because I think very few incels can afford that kind of surgery uh, or, or even go there. But there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk about self-improvement there. Or you can take the black pill, which is, you know, just there's no hope. There's no point in trying those incels believe that they're losers in the genetic lottery and because women are sexually selective on the basis of, you know, physical attributes and looks alone, there's nothing really that they can ever do in their view to ascend. So there's no point. And so that's, you know, the most kind of fatalistic and nihilistic space in many ways. And they they are also the most withdrawn. Okay, so that example does help me sort of understand this a bit better, that... On the one hand, there's kind of online communities talking about ways of being, ways of experiencing yourself, ways of looking and ways of remaking yourself that then becomes something that affects offline behaviour as well. And that is all part and parcel of both an identity, a subcultural community, but also a way of thinking about what are really quite significant political issues. And, and it's quite striking the way, the way Debbie describes it. Taking the red pill is also partly about waking up to your own aesthetic shortcomings so that you can work on yourself and recreate yourself and how you look uh, in the world. Right, so for incels, the internet becomes a place to learn about what they call looks maxing. And this is another example of how gaming discourse uh, is used here. Like a player of a role-playing game, you uh, invest the experience points you have available to you to maximise your chances of success. In this case, to maximise your chances of success in the dating game, you try and research how you should dress, how you should style your hair, what surgeries you might have. Yeah, so you can think about it as kind of gaming, dating, gaming, the sexual marketplace. But then there's also another idea from, from, from digital culture that they're drawing on, right? Which is the idea that you can hack anything. Anything can be hacked, even your jawline, right? It's modifiable. It can be hacked and improved and maxed to, to get the best results. So to make sense of how all this works, we need to be thinking about how, how digital technologies work and how they make new kinds of aesthetics possible. So the technology, what we've talked about before, is the affordances of the platforms is changing the way people think about images and the way things look and how to create and recreate and manipulate images in the world. So digital content is always available to us. We can save it on our phone or in the cloud. We can crop it or put text overlays on it. We can Photoshop it. We can share it. We can pull it out of context and put it in a context that we like better. Okay, so a phenomenon then that existed already people latching on to something such as a television show or a photo or a film that affirms their worldview gets intensified even further online. But people can also very easily now cut it up, rework it, add it into other things. Anything can be broken into little bits, a screenshot, for example, and then get circulated within ever narrower or ever larger niches. And that becomes a way of affirming your subcultural aesthetic while also messing with others. Yeah, and that niche bit is really important, right? And Mark Tudor has explained to us about how aesthetics are often antagonistic in online subcultures. Along the lines of subculture, um, where you have a kind of a, in a way, just following the way that they describe themselves, um, where you have a sort of an idea of a mainstream, very simplistic idea uh, and very generalized idea of a mainstream, and that is this character is used to distinguish a subculture that has all of its attendant vernacular elements and, pra and cultural practices that uh, associated with subcultures, except for they are anonymous primarily, um, uh, and that makes a pretty big distinct difference. And it's all you know online and memes. 
in part because of that anonymity uh, function as a kind of way in which people can distinguish their belonging to this subculture um, and their kind of fluency as being like on the inside of this, what often ends up being very antagonistic type of relationship to that this subculture has to uh, whatever it is that they're opposed to the mainstream or actually many other opponents as well. Um, that go into rather extreme directions, actually. So part of what Mark Tudors is talking about here uh, is that idea of, of mask culture, right, that he that we talked about in a previous episode, that the idea that he developed with his colleague at the University of Amsterdam, Daniel DeZeu, right, where uh, there's a kind of antagonistic relationship to what's seen as the mainstream culture. We also talked to Claire Birchall, who researches digital media at King's College London, and she linked these obscure sorts of aesthetic practices to ludic culture, to playfulness, to the idea that it's fun when you're part of the group that gets it. And it's even more fun when there's another group, the mainstream, the normies, uh, normie journalists who don't get it, who try to understand what you're doing and then reveal themselves as being outsiders. Each different niche space has its own idiolect and creates, I mean, insiders and outsiders. I mean, it's why Acorn is such a hostile space, right? I mean, it's almost impossible to go into as a as a newbie, as an outsider, as a, as a researcher even. Um, and the language is is definitely a way of sort of demarcating who is inside and outside. So you don't even actually need to have these kind of firewalls or, you know, kind of encrypted spaces, right? You just encrypt yourself through uh, the performance of insider language and memes that really have no meaning to anybody else except if you've seen that meme hundreds of times used in certain particular formations and ways. That sense in which those those <laughs> those users don't feel like they need to make themselves understood or knowable to anybody else right you know the demand to become transparent for them is a totally laughable experience it's why they hate journalists it's why they laugh when journalists report on what they what they're talking about and what they're doing it's why journalism gets the deep web wrong all the time. So we have groups that are on the one hand kind of incredibly obscure and focused on niche cultural issues, yet also can be very politically powerful, creating terms and phrases and ways of thinking that leak out and spread beyond those niche areas onto the wider internet. So Annie Kelly, who is a researcher and podcaster who studies online anti-feminism, told us that this kind of outsider aesthetic was key to the rise of the alt-right. I wrote a really outdated article about it back in 2017 or 2016, I can't remember. It's like really, really old. But one of the arguments I made in that was the alt-right was never about making lots and lots of people be alt-right or, you know, say, yes, I'm a member of the alt-right or whatever. Um, and that actually they always really liked kind of their sort of status as outsiders, as kind of, you know, this image board culture. And that was why they, you know, quite deliberately made the kind of aesthetics quite like threatening and ugly and... Um, hostile to outsiders for that reason. And unfortunately, it does seem like the far right is doing much better than the left when it comes to exploiting digital aesthetics to promote their politics. We talked to Becca Lewis, a PhD candidate at Stanford University who writes about digital culture and politics about this. You also have different stylistic influences on the left. So on the right, uh, a lot of the creators I observed were kind of taking their cues from 
Fox News, from Rush Limbaugh, this kind of talk radio, cable news, angry populism. But also some of them kind of, you know, used vlogging techniques where they would just be kind of sitting in their bedrooms talking about their personal experiences. Um, on the left, again, you have a range of different styles, but a lot of times there's an adoption of a much more theatrical approach um, with kind of skits and sketches and um, highly produced videos that can take months to put together. And so it's not to say that they're not developing kind of the same uh, ties of trust with their audience, because I think they are, but I think that they're using different techniques to get there. And so, you know, I think it's a, a really interesting question that actually like merits further study. And I hope People are doing that. Ironically, the right does a better job of digital solidarity than the left typically does. The left tends to be more individualistic on digital media. It's more about having the right take than it is about developing a sense of intimacy with your audience. Yeah, there are a lot of what you might call left political subcultures too, uh, and it would take more years and more podcasts to get at all of it. But I think a way of thinking about this is through the term culture war. Sometimes that is used to refer to general political or ideological conflicts that are waged within the culture, and sometimes it refers to a clash between cultures, simplistically defined as liberal and conservative, or urban and rural, modern and traditional. There's a truth to both, especially I think the first, but I think what we're seeing online is something else too. New art forms, new ways of expressing ourselves, are always reflections of deeper changes, and also part of that change. Those art forms are a way in which we apprehend our situation, the human condition as it is today. They give us experiences which can also change that apprehension. Photography and then film altered the way we experience time. Painting styles change the way we experience seeing. Digital means and digital communication are changing the ways we experience ourselves, how we apprehend ourselves, what we look and feel like, and how we create and express identities. And that's a deeply and fundamentally political process. I have a hunch that at some level the more conservative or reactionary forms of politics get that more deeply than the liberal kinds, which are still trying to do politics through words and arguments and turn the internet into a big seminar. That's not what it is at all. We've gone through loads of stuff in this episode. Is there any way that we can pull this all together and summarise it? Sure, here are the headlines, OK? Aesthetics give rise to ways of looking at the world. And as they change, our ways of looking at the world change. It often feels like everything is atomised today. Ideologies, identities, aesthetics, and digital culture intensifies that, siloing us into individual micro-demographics. But it also provides new ways to aesthetically signal identity and ideology and to build collective identities. Partly this is because of how our platforms work. They're highly aesthetic spaces where the way things look connects to how we feel about them and who we think of ourselves as being in the world. And we're going to look at that next episode with conspiracy theories. On this episode of Reactionary Digital Politics, you have been listening to... My name is Florian Kahlo. I'm Debbie Ging. My name's Claire Birchall. My name's Annie Kelly. My name is Becca Lewis. My name is Mark Tudors. And thanks also to our students, Gareth, Dom, James, Lisa, Lauren, Max and Luke. You also heard from... Me, Rob Gallagher. Me, Rob Topenka. And me, Alan Finlayson. And me, Sophie Ludkin. 
The music was composed by Harriet Riley and produced by Tom Jacob. Production was supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the University of East Anglia and Birkbeck University of London. Please like, subscribe and share and leave us a positive glowing review.